Welcome back, everybody, to the Deposit That Podcast, Season 3, Episode 4, with an attorney that I was going to play Never Scared by Bone Crushers. It's a song I ain't never scared for. Damien, Damien, welcome to Deposit That Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. You said you never really come into the city. We don't remember the last time other than going to Arthur Avenue for a nice meal. <laughs> That's right. I, I think that uh, it, it has to be before the pandemic uh, Crazy, right? that I've been in New York. and. Uh, I went to law school here. But you have your office space here in New York too, right? I do. <laughs> How does that work? I, I have an office uh, that I that I rent at 11 Broadway. Um, oh, right here, on Broadway. Yeah, uh, downtown. downtown. And uh, I actually sent my paralegal there just to make sure uh, <laughs> the his actual office was still there. <laughs> you know, he went recently. So why don't you tell everybody what you do, what you specialize, and then we'll get into a nice story. So I, I'm a litigator. Um, what does that mean for the person that's never right. experienced real life litigation? So uh, when you need to go to court to fight about uh, something, I'm that person. Um, I don't uh, do uh, transactional work for the most part. I'm not a you know a guy that closes on your house or your building. Sure, uh, I'm somebody that you know does a lot of business divorce work. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm partners in businesses who can't get along with each other anymore sure. and uh which is almost inevitable unfortunately in many know, cases in many cases it is um but you'd be surprised how many long-term partners work out mm-hmm. um i'm also like a crisis manager uh psychologist and problem solver for my clients you know i'm like tom in the godfather <laughs> you know, the trusted <laughs> yep, consul yep, yep. i get calls all day and all night for me to try and figure out you know how to solve problems for people. A lot of times it, it requires litigation. And a lot of times, it, you know, it requires something else. So I'm sitting at home last night about to go to bed. I'm watching. I got into like this Marvel series. My son wanted to watch Daredevil. So we watched Daredevil and it turned into The Punisher. Now I'm on like The Defender. So I'm like, Jessica Jones, I The Defender. hooked on Iron Marvel. Fist, yeah. Luke Cage. I watched them all. They're Love incredible. Them. Love them. I feel like I've left out, been like left out of this like Marvel concept for 33 years, but now I'm on it, right? So I'm sitting there last night, and I'm My like, wife makes fun of me all the time. Better, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's because you're happy. That's I'm why. happy. She doesn't want you to be yeah, happy. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, what am I going to wear tomorrow, you know? And then I said, well, I can't have him come in with a suit and tie on and me be sitting here without a suit and tie on, right? So that's the reason why I feel like I'm back at Halloween. You faked you know? me out because I went on and watched some of your other episodes and you yeah. weren't wearing a suit and tie. I said, well, I can't show up with a suit and so, tie. So the theme of this season that we're in is sports mindset and business. And the key is getting back to business, right? I think playtime's over. You know, Coming out of the pandemic, a lot of people kind of just did nothing. Like you said, 15, 16, 18 months, however long it's been. The key is getting back into the old school ways that got us to this point in the first place, right? Handshakes, being presentable, respect. No more elbow bumps. No more elbow bumps, none of those. No more like, you know, liking text messages. Like, let's get back to business. So that's why I'm back in my suit and tie. Strictly for you, though. So next guest might not get that. But tell everyone how you became the litigation specialist expert that you are, and maybe start off by the story that got you to where you are today. Well, when I went to law school, I knew that... um, my skill set wasn't going to be uh, behind a desk and just drafting contracts. Mm-hmm. And I went to law school because I wanted to be in court. I wanted to be arguing cases. And uh, I guess it was always who I was. I remember when I was in high school, I had a gym teacher said, Albergo, you ought to be a lawyer. Because <laughs> you know, I would argue with her about everything. Did you grow and up in Jersey? I did. I grew up in River Edge, okay. New Jersey, yep. in Bergen County. Yep. And... Um, 
I always guess I, I, I guess I'm only qualified to do one thing. It's being a litigator. I don't know what else I would do if I wasn't a litigator. But um, I really found a love for doing the business divorce type stuff uh, almost 20 years ago. Um, when I, I had joined a new firm and I got this case, it was totally outside my area of expertise. It were it was two guys. Uh, we'll, we'll call them uh, Bob and David. Okay. okay, and they owned a medical device manufacturing business, and they were getting older. They were maybe in their sixties, and uh, the business wasn't doing well. And Bob was like the engineer who designed the device and knew how to run the business. The innovator. He was the innovator, and and David was the the schmoozer salesman. Well, they were going through a tough time in like the 90s, mid-90s, and David decides he wants to semi-retire to Maine. And he's going to continue working, allegedly, and they scratch out a deal on paper where uh, David's going to get a certain amount of money for salary and he's going to get like excess profits, whatever that was. By the way, Maine still doesn't have cell phone service today, so yeah. imagine what it was 25 years ago. Yeah, supposedly he <laughs> would semi-retire, but he, he did nothing. Yeah. Well, you know, a few years later, business goes crazy. They're making a ton of money. And they're making the money because Bob is working. Off of Bob's back. Every day at the business, running the place, and David is just collecting checks. How do you get out of this situation? And um, Most people, I'm assuming, do it the illegal way, I'm going to guess, or take money off the top, resentment builds, right? That's, it's, well, resentment did build. A build. Bob didn't do anything illegal, but given the way the law works, Bob didn't have any way to sue David. David wasn't doing anything wrong. He wasn't doing anything illegal. As per their agreement. As per their or, agreement. Or the but law. As per their agreement, because their agreement didn't really contemplate any of this. They said we're 50 50, and that's they, it. They were always 50 50, right? Yep. And so for us to be able to buy. David out. David didn't want to talk about being bought out because life was great for him. Sure. And we didn't have really a basis to sue him. But because of uh, the uniqueness of the New Jersey uh, corporate statute at issue, once there is a lawsuit, for whatever reason, the company or any shareholder has a right to make an application to buy out the other person. So we needed to strategize. Usually you want to be the plaintiff in a lawsuit, sure. right? We decided because we had no claim against David, we're going to make David sue us. So we implemented a strategy. We said, we're going to fire him. We're going to cut off all of his benefits, his health insurance, everything. It's going to make him go Even crazy. Even though he's an owner. Even though he's an owner. 50-50. How do you fire a 50-50 partner? We were in control of the bank accounts. So we stopped writing him the checks. We knew he was going to sue us. Cut off his income We stream. wanted of him course. to sue us. Of course. David went out and hired a huge law firm, kicked our butts right at the beginning of the case with an injunction. But we you were, knew that already. We, it was we, coming. We were okay with it. Yep. We knew it was yep. coming. Yep. Eventually, we wound up in a mediation because the, the cost of litigation was going to go, be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And David saw the handwriting on the wall. Bob was willing to pay millions of dollars to get him out of the business. And it ultimately worked out. And that was my first. So you were in your early 20s, uh, mid 20s. I was 30. Gotcha. You know, Still young, though, for that. Yeah, I was 30. And. Um, I loved it. I said, wow, you know, uh, husbands and wives get divorced all the time, but business partners 
get divorced too. And it could be just as emotional in certain circumstances. Sure. If not more. And, and and there's a lot of strategy involved. It's like playing chess. Have you always, and again, knowing that our relationships obviously, we're, we're here, but we're going to obviously escalate it. Seeing what I've seen so far with you, have you always been a planner, a preparer? Is it because you don't want to get caught with your pants down or because you want to just absolutely step on someone's throat? <laughs> absolutely not. I was not always a, a planner. You weren't. <laughs> I was impulsive and short-sighted. I mean, you got three kids, right? I do. Planned, planned, not planned? or uh, Planned. <laughs> your wife is no, going to watch not this. Well, <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> planned by whom is gotcha. really the question gotcha. that you should be asked. My wife, I think my wife planned. Spoke like the, a true yeah, attorney. My, my wife planned the first one. Yeah. <laughs> I think the first two were planned and the third one was not, but they've all been a great what, blessing. What made you really become a true planner? What made you become a true expert? Is because you respect your time or you respect your craft? Um, by nature, I tend to be more impulsive, but you cannot be in this business. You know, uh, you can't uh, advance people's cause mm -hmm. in court mm -hmm. or achieve their goals and objectives unless they've got a plan to get there, almost every new matter that comes through the door, first time I speak with the client, I say, or try to find out, what's your objective here? Yeah, what do you want? Yeah. And if you don't know what the client's objective is, you have no chance of success, right? So if it's litigation or if it's not litigation, I need to know what your goal is. And then I need to find out what are the obstacles to getting that goal. And what I do is figure out how to clear out those obstacles hmm. in the most cost-effective way possible in the shortest amount of time possible. That's sort of how I look at, you know, solving problems for my clients. And so being in this uh, profession forced me to learn how to plan and to put my, you know, sort of impulsive nature uh, aside. How has that worked out for you in the recent times, obviously a lot of people in today's world, secretive, not trusting, um, very, how do I say, who was, I think Yogi Berra once said, like short arms, deep pockets, short <laughs> arms, long pockets, right? They don't want to pay, right? So how do you manage that into today's world? Because obviously, you know, dealing with you, I know that you are very thorough. You spend the time, you spend above and beyond, call it overtime with the client. How do you manage that? Well, what do you mean by uh, pay? <laughs> so um, clients always have to pay, right? right? right. Uh, or this right. whole system. Well, for, here's the reason why. People right. don't trust, right? So if people don't trust, they're more likely not to want to just cough over a dollar, let alone... Oh, you mean to their lawyer? Correct. Oh, okay. The way I deal with that is um, I let the clients know that I'm there for them and that, you know, you want to talk to me at night, I'm here. Here's my cell phone number, yep. you know, yep. here's my home phone number. Yep. And I spend the time with them to make them feel comfortable that they're, they're being heard, you know, that their uh, goals, their objectives are being advanced. Mm -hmm. um, but they need to know that that level of service comes with a price. And, um, you know, if, if you don't want to pay, you know, fine, you don't get the, the service. All right. You know, um, I want to help my clients. I put my clients' interests first. Um, but I can attest to that. At the end of the day, you know, I'm in this to support my family, sure. right? Sure. And I have clients who are willing to pay. Sure. So, you know, it's just understood 
from the day you signed my engagement letter. Yep. I'm going to send you bills on a monthly basis, you know, and all of my bills. Another issue to answer your question about trust. Mm-hmm. You know, my invoices are incredibly detailed. Mm-hmm. They show the number of minutes I spend on a task, explaining in detail what I do. And I tell my clients, if you ever have any question about why I'm doing anything, ask me. Another thing is, whenever a client gets a bill and sees an entry on a bill, they're never surprised by it because I copy my clients on all my communications. If anything needs to happen substantively before we do it, I make sure I get the client's approval. I tell them what I plan on doing. I tell them what their options are and how much these things are probably going to cost. So when something happens, the client's already been paid in. It's not not a shock. There are a lot of lawyers that send clients bills. The clients don't hear from the lawyer for months. They wonder wonder if everything on the bill actually happened. None of my clients ever feel that way. So as we know, most people enter business agreements very optimistic. Hey, here I'm going to do this. You're going to do that. 50-50. Nobody goes into it expecting We're going to make $100 million. Me and you, today, when we leave here, we're going to go on our track. This time next year, we're going to have a $100 million venture, right? right? I walk outside. I break my ankle. You cross the street. Your wife says you need to come home for the next three months because she's going back to school, and now you can't practice your profession. Now we're both sitting here. What do we do, right? From your experience, how do new partners create a level of protection for both themselves and the up and up on the business day one without understanding or knowing what the hurdles or variables come over the foreseeable future? You mean how do they do it or how should they do it? Because those two things give me are both. usually give me, very Give me different. both how they do it and then tell me how they should do it. So um, unfortunately, most people in my view, when they start a new business, fail to uh, take into account all the contingencies and bad things that you just mentioned Variables. could happen in the future. Um, if they even draft some kind of operating agreement or shareholder agreement, which you would be surprised how many people don't even try. Yeah, like I said, it's on a bar napkin. Well, yeah, Let's have they, a beer and they, go over it. They don't even try. And that is the number one most common error. Um, now, how how do you do it? You need to plan for a number of contingencies. Some of the most common errors that people make is they fail. If they do draft an operating agreement, a shareholder agreement, a partnership agreement, something like that, they fail to um, clearly lay out what the people's roles are going to be because not everything could be managed by committee. Um, If you're running, and it depends on the type of business. So let's, for example, take... Um, an entity that has a store and sells products or a manufacturing business as opposed to a company that just owns real estate where they collect rents. Totally different types of operations, right? In the former scenario where your day-to-day operations are more involved, Mm -hmm. manufacturing, sales, you need somebody to be able to call the shots to make a decision on if you need to go out and buy something off Amazon. Like restock the toilet paper, whatever. Exactly. You can't operate a business like that by a committee. So even though the owners may have an equal ownership percentage, Mm -hmm. a lot of people fail to identify who gets to make certain day-to-day decisions. And when a problem arises later, 
and now you have other partners saying, we don't agree to this, it creates deadlock. And deadlock is one of the most common problems that um, face partners after. So a true standstill. True standstill. You can't do anything. Uh, let's say you need to refinance the business. You need to take out a new loan. You need Whatever to increase your credit yep. line. Yep. The bank now wants all the owners to sign off on it. They won't do it. So oftentimes you just don't contemplate uh, the roles of the people. So would you recommend, I'm going to call it like an ongoing forward operating agreement where like day one we sit down and say, hey, here's what we think. But I'm giving an example. Hey, we opened up another store. Okay, now we have to put in that on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Jeff's opening it up. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Damien's responsible for opening it up. Or how do you see that? Because what I've experienced is, again, I'm 34, but I feel like I'm 84 when it comes to business because I made plenty of mistakes from these things here, right? Because in school, I I'm, I majored in marketing and girls. I mean, football in, yeah. in college. Oh, yeah. Me too. But uh, well, <laughs> you, not you know, football. You know yeah. that, right? Yeah. But really, business and marketing. But in my business courses, they never explained operating agreements, how to set up partnerships and all this stuff. Yeah, you knew right. what a partnership was and an LLC was, but right. that was it. But my first venture, I put up 63000 nothing in writing, you know? I thought I was an owner. Yeah, I put up 60, I didn't know there was an operating agreement or whatever, right? Right. So you don't know what you're going to face until you face it. So how do you keep trying to hit a moving target on something that you don't know what those responsibilities are going to be, truthfully? Well, day one, uh, for example, I just had some clients come to me um, and they were going to be buying a piece of property and developing it into like residential apartments mm -hmm. and lease it out and hold it, right? And um, that's a very different situation than, you know, the, the, the situation we're talking sure. about. So we said up front in the operating room, somebody's got to be the manager. Now, I'm going to get into a little bit of a technical legal issue. You can have LLCs, for example, or it could be member managed, mm -hmm. where decisions are made by the members collectively, mm -hmm. or manager managed. Somebody's appointed one as single manager. person. Could be one, could be several. But, and that manager in the agreement is given certain responsibilities. They have the right to hire and fire employees. They could have the right to execute contracts up to a certain amount of money. You know, they can have the right to execute what you would expect the business needs. And if you identify who that person is from the get-go, you go a long way in solving that problem. Because now... You've given the person the authority under the documents mm -hmm. to do what they need to do for the company, and everybody knows. Can that ever be challenged or disputed? So, like, yes. I know something is like, hey, okay, let's say I'm the managing member. I have the ability to approve or cut a check up to ten thousand, for example, and I cut a check for nine grand. Falls completely under my like scope of being able to do that. Can someone then ever challenge that or no? The answer is yes. There was an old saying from a, a lawyer that I knew who was. Fantastic. He became a judge. A legend. Yeah. And his saying was, the paper never refuses the ink. And basically what that means is you could do whatever you want, right? From a legal so, basis. So, but somebody could always sue you. Whether they win or lose is a totally different story. But in this country, all it takes to file a lawsuit is to have a story and a filing fee. That's it. That's it. Now, when you go to court, you say... Your Honor, my client's the manager. The agreement gives them the authority to sign contracts up to $10,000. This was a $9,000 yep. contract. You know, Hard case. Yeah, but it's not always that clear, right? So you can't, you can't assume and protect against every contingency, against every dispute that will mm -hmm. come later. But if you think 
enough in advance about the common mistakes that people make and you try to avoid that, you know, you can head off a problem later. Another example of that. What happens if somebody dies? What happens if the partner dies? A lot of times, you know, these agreements don't uh, contemplate succession planning mm -hmm. and how to pay for that. Mm -hmm. Let's say you've got two key employees. The business is making a ton of money. Let's say the business is worth $10 million. There are two guys. Each share, each one share is worth $5 million. Mm -hmm. And one guy dies. You know, you want to be in business with your uh, dead partner's wife? Probably not. Or children? Probably not. Maybe not. So you can account for that. You can have it so uh, the the surviving partner has the right to buy out the deceased at a fixed estate. price or through you a could, new. You could set a valuation formula if you want. You could leave it up to the courts to decide, which isn't always a great idea. And right. you can also fund that buyout through key man life insurance. Sure. So you can uh, you can as a business owner take out a life insurance policy on your partner, and. Fund the buyout. Now, do you recommend insurance. that? I do. If there's enough money at stake, up right? to or starting at, yeah, I mean, a million. I mean, what is that number in your in your you opinion? Gotta, you got to look and see how much the premiums would cost you, right? right. I mean, if if you're young and you're healthy, right. you know, the cost of life insurance might be worth is, it. You know, is might be worth it. Sure. Um, so there are a lot of contingencies that people uh, they don't think about. For example, you're a young, healthy guy. You're an athlete, right? Let's say you start a business with another young, healthy athlete, mm -hmm. right? You're not thinking either one of you are going to die, right? Right, right. But you could get hit by a bus tomorrow. tomorrow. Yeah. So you know, you you try to plan for those things to prevent you know nasty litigation later. So let's say somebody, let's say then we have this brilliant idea. We want to make up our own real estate holdings company. We're going to go, you know, change the world and make billions of dollars by doing so, right? Just, just me and you, 50-50. So we're getting into a real estate partnership, and we're going to buy our first property right here. We're going to put up 50% of down payment each. We're going to get financing for the balance, right? How would you personally set that up to protect both parties, right? And how would you set it up with the understanding that this may not work? <laughs> well, um because a lot of our audience is obviously in the real estate space and, you know, capital calls, repairs, divorces, you name it, right? Change of life plans, moving to Florida, whatever. Right. A couple of things. Number one, um, capital calls, you know, are a big deal. For everyone that doesn't know, you want to explain that what that is? Yeah. So let's say it could be any business. You expect, hypothetically, you need a half a million dollars to run this business, mm -hmm. right? You spend the half a million dollars, you get the loan, you buy the property. Now you need more money. Something happens. You need to make some emergency repairs. Maybe your partner doesn't have the money. Mm -hmm. In your agreement, you provide for if we need to raise new money, we have the right to do a capital call. All the partners have the obligation or the opportunity to put in their fair share. And if one person doesn't have the money, the other person can either loan it at a decent interest rate, so uh, the loan gets paid back first before any profits are distributed, or another way of doing it, which I think is not as good, is you have a dilution provision that basically says, okay... You don't like I, that option. I don't, because I think... If resentment? You, resentment. If you're now... If we start this business 50-50, right? And let's say you have to put in another thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000... And now you're the majority and I'm the minority. Now you call all the shots. I think that leads to resentment. It's better, I think, in my view, to do it as a loan. So 
you account for that type of scenario up front. The other thing you asked about is what happens if we want to get out. And that's that's a much trickier um, thing because most agreements limit your ability to just sell or transfer sure. your interest without the consent of the other party. Sure. Um, although it's not as common, you see people uh, build into some agreements what they call put and call rights. So um, you can say, for example, after three or five years, I have the right to put my interest and say, you have to buy me out, right? And at a certain formula, you can establish that. Or you can, which tends to be somewhat more common, create provisions that give the right to sell your share to someone as long as maybe you give your partners the right of first refusal. Understood. Um, Those even still aren't that common. And this is this is the biggest issue I find, which is maybe the the business goes on for years or decades and they never contemplated exit strategies. And now now you're look you're staring down a litigation. So do you see a lot of people in business also lose friendships because of this? Uh, all the time. And and family members. Probably more common family members, right? That that get into business with each other. Well, <laughs> they probably don't like each other to begin with. Well, well, <laughs> right? They get into business with each other, or that they've just succeeded yeah. to their parents' interests, right? Multi generational companies, sure. cousins who are, you know, fractional owners. Sure. You know, it is uh, extremely common and good for my business. It's great for your business. It's, it, it's, Lawyers uh, always win. Yeah. Right. Well, not always, but um, you know, people who are fighting and are emotional about it um, generate a lot of litigation. Do you typically find people suing for personal reasons rather than business reasons? Like, no, I don't care whether I win or lose here. I want to pull this person through the mud. Do you find that common in today's <laughs> yes, world? Yes, uh, I do. But they always say that, like, this is a matter of principle. Right. I'm fighting as a matter right. of principle. They, they usually say that until there. they get a few bills. Gotcha. And then, and then after out the window. And then, and then it's a matter of this is costing me a lot of money. Gotcha. It's if I had a dime for every. So time. it's principal up front, and then it's coming down to. Well, spend. yeah, because it, it respect, um, hurt feelings, you know, pride. Pride is. is Do a you agree big that there's a place for fighting for principle or breaking balls, if you will, for principle? I guess it depends on the type of matter that you're involved in but what i do is you know business disputes right and i i don't think that uh principle when it's a business dispute really should factor into it because at the the end of the day the reason why you got into this business relationship in the first place is for money right and so if you're going to lose money if your share of the business is worth like a, a half a million dollars but You've just spent three hundred thousand dollars to litigate. Right. You just cost yourself sixty percent. Yeah, maybe your partner offered you uh, three hundred thousand right. dollars to be bought out right. at the beginning. You would have done you lost all. You would thousand. Yeah, you lost a hundred thousand dollars. So, um, how did your principal work for you in that situation? Yeah, you lost your principal. I, I always, I always try and explain to my clients, and they say it all the time. This is a matter of principle. I said, tell me that in six months. Right, twenty five thousand in and everything else. Yeah. And I and I try to I try to give the clients where it's 
necessary, the bad news early, and forecast for them what's going to happen and say, look, I know you think you got a great case. I know you're really mad. All of these bad things happen to you and you want to sue, right? But you're going to spend this amount of money and this is what you're likely going to get in return. Are you okay with that? Right. Most people will say, oh, I didn't realize. Right. I don't want to spend 25 to get back 30. A, I didn't know my case was only worth that. Everybody, right. everybody thinks their case is worth more. And everybody thinks the legal fees are going to be less. Right. Yeah, close that gap. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, if you, I always try to tell them that up front. Maybe I've lost some clients and cases um, by being brutally honest. Rather that, though. Fine. But I'd rather that because the clients that I have come back to me because, you know, they know I'm going to tell it to them straight. Now, a good litigator has to have two sides to them, they have to be the lion, right? When they're in court or sure. dealing with third parties, sure. but they have to be the honest counselor in private with right. their client. Some lawyers don't understand the difference. They're always the advocate. And they have to be. They, they're always they don't know the any advocate. better. They don't know their craft. And uh, there was a great um, corporate lawyer. He was the gray-haired veteran, and he once told me. He said. Don't be a cheerleader for your client. And I'll never forget it. You know, if you're cheerleading for your client, you're not doing them any good. They don't need you. They don't need you. You know, they may feel good sure. today. They may feel I got a guy who's really on my side. Sure. You know, but if the result isn't what they had hoped, they're just going to be surprised. But don't you find that most people in today's world would rather that cheerleader? Yeah. They do, right? Absolutely. Um Clients want emotional validation, especially today, from their lawyer. They they really need that feeling of I have somebody on my side who agrees with me, right? And you know, sometimes you you just need to tell your client, listen, I I don't agree with you in terms of what you think you're going to get out of this, mm-hmm. or what the likely outcome is going to be. And and you got to give them a dose of reality. Look, I if this is your goal and you want to go down this road, I will go down this road for you. But but this is what it's going to cost and this is what the likely outcome is going to be. I had this conversation with a client yesterday who really lost money doing a, a deal with a family member, <laughs> but they didn't document it in writing. And now the, the family member won't pay them. They got to sue. The amount of money at stake isn't huge. They have risk, but they can't get over the emotional aspect of it. It's probably the toughest thing. I've been guilty of that. The, you feel that down. You're hurt. You trusted somebody. Now you trust your own. Now you don't trust your own judgment, instincts, every, all of the above. I've been I've been there for many years. Yeah, it's unfortunate, you know, because again, you think you know someone, and then when they don't deliver, and then you're the bad guy because you helped them when they needed it. Right. And what do you do? Well, old school ways, you do what you got to do Bronx style, you know? <laughs> Today, in today's world, you can't do that anymore. It's, it's almost like there It's almost like there are no re- – it's a lose-lose predicament, I feel like. Even with an agreement in writing, you know? It can be. I'm sure you see it all the time where people have even written agreements that are ironclad that people don't have it or, you know, it's not worth it. It depends the, on the circumstances. Right. You know, not – even the best written agreement can't account for – all the potential variables sure. and circumstances. Sure. 
And so in this situation where I was talking to this client yesterday, I said, look. How much money is that curiosity, was it? It's under $100,000. Okay, still, still right. a chunk. Yeah, but, you know, um, that's their claim. The other side has a counterclaim. It's going to cost money to pay me to fight it. Sure. If my client loses, there's uh, a provision in place that they may have to pay the other side's legal fees and my legal fees. Yes, now you lost that principal plus 100000 in legal right. fees. <laughs> and so I, I tell my clients, look, we can go down this road or we could go down this road. And we'll, if we go down this road, this is what might happen. If we go down this road, this is what might happen. Tell me what you want to do. Do you think most disputes can be avoided up front with the right counsel or no? You think just sometimes personalities just don't click? Um, most disputes, can they be avoided up front with the right counsel? Um, I don't know how to answer that because the dispute could be anything. You know, there's no, um, there's no agreement that could uh, prevent ego sure. from getting involved. Sure. Um, or resentment. Or resentment. You know, money is always an issue. Is that 90% of what you come across, money? I, it, it's mostly money and uh, changed circumstances. Like you said before, you know, two guys sure. going to go take over the world, sure. start a new business. But maybe one guy has kids and the other one doesn't. It goes through a divorce, whatever. It go, goes through a divorce and their focus isn't there and the other person's focus is there. And now, as you said, resentment. Sure. Um, an ego come into play and why should you be getting half when you're not contributing half? Right. So there's no agreement in the world that will um, prevent those feelings. What a good agreement may give the parties a more graceful separation. Right. Now, in today's world that we live in, right, what do you pick and choose as the catalyst for taking on the case versus not taking on a case in today's world, knowing everything you know, with the court systems obviously being backed up, with people not wanting to spend twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars litigating, how do you basically pick your pitch to hit out of the park? Because I, um, I know you're not the guy that's going to take on a case that you think you're going to lose. I know that for a fact. Um, it's a couple of things. Number one, how much are we fighting about? If I don't think that I can bring value. Mm -hmm. to the circumstances because, um, let's say, the amount at stake isn't um, commensurate with the amount of legal fees that you would need to invest to achieve your goal. That's probably the number one thing. Um, how strong is the case? Now, I don't only take good cases. Mm -hmm. I'll take cases where the clients have a tough case, but I'll tell them, look, you got a tough case, and maybe we need to file litigation knowing that we have a tough case just to try and create some leverage to uh, resolve the situation. So from a strategy standpoint. From a strategy standpoint, maybe you need to do it, but you say, look, you know, um, there's a lot of risk if this thing goes too too far down the road. Will you pull that plug as counsel? You can't always just pull the plug. Can't. Yeah, sometimes you can't. If the other side answers. So you might be so in you, too deep. You could be in too deep. Um, so... The, the number one thing is probably the amount that's at stake. Uh, another thing that's really important people don't look at is who, who are you suing? Mm -hmm. 
right? Like you could have a great case against somebody, but if they have no money, the getting, yeah, you, you yeah. can't get blood from a stone. Right. And so, you know, even if you're, it, it's really hard thing to tell a client, look, take your lumps. You're going to lose money here, and there's no good options for you, right? And people don't like to hear that, but sometimes they need to hear that because maybe you're going to lose fifty thousand dollars, a hundred thousand, a million dollars, right? It may be better than losing $2 million. Sure. Our text, me- as we spoke about earlier, yeah. everything's like, hey, Damien, I'm going to, yeah, I'll pay you back to 10 grand, right? Or whatever. Hey, um, we're going to do this business. I'm going to put up to 20,000 today. You pay me back when you have it, right? For example, okay, Jeff, we're good. It's agreed, whatever the case is. That's how the world we live in is today, right? Right. We'll get the operating agreement done later. Right. Text or email. Do those hold up in court? Absolutely. 100%. 100%. Text and email are written, they're evidence. It's a, a written statement um, that could get into evidence. Uh, for example, you and me, right? Um, before there was email and text messages, those would be oral conversations, right? right? Over the phone, yep. in person, one side. He said, she said. He said, she said. Is that called hearsay? No, that's uh, different. Hearsay is different. If it's between you and me, yeah. if I'm suing you and yeah. you're suing me, what we say to each other is not hearsay. It's not. No. Could be a matter of fact. But what he said might be. Gotcha. Um, Ian's definitely it, got a hearsay exactly. guy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but nowadays, uh, you can't believe how important the text messages are in, in resolving disputes because people make all sorts of admissions. They say stupid things. Um, I'm guilty of it. <laughs> who is everyone? Right? Who, who is it? Right. right? I'm and, not with you. I can't punch you in the face, but I'm gonna I'm gonna kick your ass. They, you know? Well, they're not fully formed thoughts right. often, right? right? right. And so, um, and they're 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 sent immediately. There's no um, reflection. You know, I'll draft an email, and I'll sit on it, and I'll edit it, and I'll rewrite it, and then I'll send it later. And there was thought put into when it. When you're cool, calm, and collected. That never happens with text no, messages. Right. So they absolutely are admissible in court. Um, do you find judges as judges are mostly older, right? Older generations. Do they kind of weigh it more or less or not really? Um, no. I think um, the courts have gotten used to uh, these forms of communication. I mean, you know, if... If, if we're in a dispute mm-hmm. and you say, um, Damien told me so-and-so, and I say, that's not true, and you have the text message that, you know, Damien said it. Credibility. Shot. Yeah, it's, it, it's admitted into evidence, and I've just been proven to be a liar, you know. So uh, absolutely, if, uh, if you have text messages and you have emails, save them. Gotcha. You know, particularly if you're planning a breakup with your sure. business partner, sure, right? Save everything. Interesting. Turn on that iCloud. Yeah. You know, save back those messages. Up. Yeah. Back it all up. Now, do you find most people are guilty of that, like saying the wrong thing in text or email, and then it reappearing? You have to see crazy stuff. I'm all assuming, the time. right? Like, all why the, did you tell me about this time. email? Oh, I forgot I sent it. Yeah, all the time. Oh yeah, being surprised. Sure. Yeah, by your client because sure. they didn't. Uh, Give you everything happens. Now, in your position as counsel, would you rather be the one suing or the one defending? If you had to pick <laughs> oh, one side. I'd rather be the plaintiff. All the time. Most of the time. Except that uh, that situation I mentioned earlier. Yeah. We, we didn't have an option really to be the plaintiff. 
So in that case, we actually wanted to be the defendant because that's a very rare occasion. It, though, right? it is rare, rare because you have more momentum when you're the plaintiff. Uh, you know, t- maybe you're taking the other side by surprise. Right. You know, you get the first foot in the door. Sure. Um, Hit hard first. There's a, exactly, and so o- almost every time you want to be the plaintiff. That's the way I was taught. Be the plaintiff. Do you see that trend continuing with the way the courts are right now? Absolutely. When do you want to get hit first? Yeah. Never. Right, never. (laughs) So from a response standpoint, are you somebody that always looks to develop a rapport with the other side, maybe look to settle it outside of going down the normal route? Like, What's your strategy in that? Because I know some people like to just get to the bottom line and some people like to drag things out. Do you take take each case case by case, or are you the guy that wants to try and like look here? Here's the deal. Here's what we're looking at here. No reason to spend ten months doing this. What's your um, stance? You on mean that? my how I deal with opposing counsel? Yeah. Because um, I'm sure there's an ego battle that comes in, but I also feel like you're not the guy that has an ego battle when it comes to this. You're more of a matter of a fact guy. I try to be. I mean, I try to look at. Uh, this is a profession and that, you know, the lawyer on the other side of it has a job to do just like I have a job to do. And what I try and convey is, you know, listen, um, when we're between the white lines, you know, I'm going to play hard, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try and accomplish the best result I can for my client as quickly as possible, as cost effectively as possible. And, and I recognize that that may, require that you do the same you you negotiate with me and i try to understand where everybody's coming from to try and come to the best resolution early however um you know there are times where you just need to be aggressive and and you need to beat somebody over the head with your pleadings and your motions and maybe you're seeking emergency injunctions and you create that leverage and that pressure you know where something has to be done and 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 you settle 98 percent of all civil cases settle before trial 98 98 percent of all civil cases settle before trial because the cost of litigating and the risk doesn't pay it, it it's so much so what's that two percent uh, personal injury cases uh you know mostly personal injury cases i think um and because and insurance companies are paying because the insurance companies are paying um that's very true but um most most business divorce cases settle before trial um, and I try, I try to cut, get to the bottom line early, you know, I, and I don't like, I'll have a conversation with an adversary that I'll say something like maybe that something like this, listen, Jeff, um, I think I got a good case. You got my papers. You had a chance to see them. Um, you know, this is what we want. So I'm showing you my hand. You, you, here, you got the papers, right? You got served with them. Yep. You, you see what we're saying. Yep. You know, this could play out for years. We could spend a ton of money, mm-hmm. right? You and me will do great. Mm-hmm. But is that what's in our client's best interest? Talk to your client. See if there's anything that we could do here. That's generally the pitch that I try to make to the other side. You know, and and the other side may come back to me and say, Damien, you know, my client thinks you're all wrong, and here's why. And I want to... Tell me why I'm wrong. Gotcha. You know, explain it to me. I'll go talk to my client and I'll come back to you and we'll have a dialogue. I always try to have a dialogue, you know, with my adversaries. There's there's very little reason not to. You know, if we just can't agree, then that's why we have judges. 
And that's why we have juries. Let them decide. Now, do you think that, you know, I had a case last week. I lost. I was over two. It is what it is. You know, moral victory, whatever, right? Lost a friend, lost over 10 grand, whatever, from a business from a couple of years ago, right? Just not a good outcome overall. Learned a lot, right? Chalk that up. Um, do you think the judge truly cares one way or another? And then second question is, do you think the judge really pays attention to what's going on? Or is it just transaction in and out? Okay. So judges are people, right? right? There are good judges and bad judges. Right. Um, do the judges really care about the litigants involved? Right. I mean, sometimes. You, so you've seen that? Yeah. No, sometimes, absolutely. Um, it depends on the type of case, you know. But I think in, you know, in most circumstances, you know, the, the judges, you know, it's their job. They have dockets that are backlogged, and they look at the cases, something to be moved off their docket. How do we get this case off the docket and move on to the next case? You know, like you guys, this is what most of the time happens. You know, judge will have a conference with the lawyers. One lawyer will say, you know, the other side's the worst person in the world. And that side will say they're the worst person in the world. And the judge will say, look, you know, you two go out in that hallway and, and work it out. You know, okay, you can't work it out? Well, guess what? You're going to trial in a month. Right. <laughs> so, right. you know, and it, they, they just put pressure on you to resolve it. Do they care how it gets resolved? Not really. Could care less. Yeah. Oh, you lost 20 grand, whatever. Oh, you guys worked it out? Yeah. Great. See you later. Yeah. Hope, yep. hope not see you again. Right. Exactly. <laughs> How powerful is it having the right counsel on a case versus price shopping? It's everything. Everything, right? It's everything. Um, you need to have a lawyer who's not only competent, right, who understands what you want to achieve, Um but is somebody that you have a connection with, that you trust. If you don't trust your lawyer, how could you possibly operate in that space, right? You need to have trust. Now, your lawyer has to be able to accomplish your objectives. You could have trust, but if they're losing, it doesn't matter, right? You need to have the right lawyer, and you shouldn't uh, hire somebody who dabbles, right? Horrible. Right. It's a bad right. thing. Like you, right. you don't want to. Like you don't want to hire me to do your residential real estate closing. Correct. It's not what you do. It, it, it right. would be it's like going it, to a bank for the wrong type it, of loan. It, they, it, they don't specialize. And in I that. don't take. And I don't take cases that right. I feel like I can't handle or, or matters that I don't feel like I can't handle. So, you know, you want to have the right lawyer for that type of matter, and you want to have that. You want to have the feeling that your lawyer is hearing you. You know, one of the biggest if not the biggest reason why lawyers get in trouble from ethics committees uh, and why they get sued for malpractices, failure of communication between the lawyer Seriously. and the client. They don't tell the client what's going on. They don't return phone calls. They don't return emails. You call their office. Maybe you get lucky to speak to their secretary. Uh, I've never had a client complain with me hey, your about that. You know, I, here's my cell phone number. By the way, Call shout me. out to Chris from Town Title for making this connection. Thank you, Chris. You won Rodeo. the first one. You know, I don't like putting Chris out there because I want him. He's a kind of like my secret. You know, he's in my back pocket. He's my ace. You know, I can't pull Chris out. He gets all my title business. I'll tell you that yeah, much. But service-wise, like, you live up to that. And I think Chris is the number one service provider 
in any space, let alone Absolutely. the title space, responsive, communicative, pleasure to work with, pleasure to deal with, like just on top of his stuff. And it's a direct reflection of the referral in this case. And I, I appreciate that more than anything, because again, we all have, well, I'm a busy person. I have busy things going on as the, the many other people, but like, you know, communication, but you also know great communication. And like, I could test that you are, you know, up there with the best of them. You know, Thank you. I'm in a deposition. I can't look at this right now. Okay. But at least you replied, not nine o'clock at night. Hey, sorry, I was in a deposition all day. Your fire doesn't need to be put out right now. You know, so I, I, I respect that and admire that. Thank Who you. are your ideal clients that should be reaching out to you? What type of cases, um, what states, um, and what can they expect if they engage you? <laughs> uh, Remember the movie People versus Larry Flint? Yeah, yeah, of course. Who's the ideal client? Somebody who's rich and always in trouble. Okay, perfect. Um, we, we, there's a lot of people watching this that <laughs> fit those categories. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, you know, the ideal client is somebody who is a business owner who is going to need help, mm-hmm. not just once, but is probably going to need help um, many times over the years that wants my counsel and advice. And um, it might not be for litigation, but it's somebody who trusts me enough to call me and say, hey, Damien, I got a problem. What, you know, what do you think I should do here? Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many clients I have call me all the time about a problem that they got going on in their life where it may not require a lawyer at all. I mean, it's funny because part of my job is being a psychologist. I and think true experts always find that. And, you know, the best client is the one that there's a hope in the future they're going to come back to you. Or refer you somebody. Or, yeah, or, or refer you somebody but, but that, that wants my advice, even on non-legal matters, because they think Damien's got good judgment. That's something we haven't talked about yet, judgment. So you think that's critical? That's you know what, that's critical. That's what separates the, the best lawyers from just the good lawyers, I think. It's having good judgment. You could technically write good papers. You could be really good on your feet and smooth at oral argument, right? But, you know, in the private moments with your clients, you know, or, you know, the back office work, right, when you're not in court, Mm -hmm. you know, you want your lawyer to have good judgment, to see the big picture and to develop you know, strategies for you that'll accomplish your goal with the least amount of risk, cost, and expense, right? If you don't have good judgment, then you may be just leading your client off a cliff, right? And it doesn't matter how good your papers were. doesn't matter how good uh, your argument was on that one motion, right? Maybe you won some motion, but, you know, you lost the war because sure. your client just went sure. over a cliff. Um, having good judgment is is critical. And I think a lot of that comes with experience. You know, I've seen some really hard times, you know, in my career. Like I've seen clients go through bad things. I've had, I've made mistakes, right? Well, we all do. That's how we learn. You know, and, um, you know, I think you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. Now, as an expert in your field, do you believe that recovering from that mistake immediately is critical or do you believe taking the time to understand how and why you made it and then strategically coming back from it? What's that timeline look like from accepting that mistake's been made? Is it immediate? Like, hey, I shot, I missed, I'm going to keep shooting or, hey, I need to change my jump shot. That's a good question. I think 
I had to stump you. you know that. Yeah, I, I guess it depends on what the mistake is. Look, most of the time, most of the time, you know, I think right away I did something wrong. Um, maybe I said something in an email that I shouldn't have, or maybe I came up with a strategy that didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and if you tell your client, early or whoever it is and own up to it and say, look, I made this mistake and I'm going to fix it. Mm -hmm. And here's my plan for fixing it. Um, Most things could be uh, addressed, but it's not something that requires a lot of learning. You know what I'm saying? Like when you, when you know that there's a mistake, Mm -hmm. right? You, you, you fix it right away. How long do you beat yourself up for that mistake? Still, still beating yourself. Depends up. on what it is, you know. There are things that I look back at years, more than a decade later. You do that. I look at and I said that was a big mistake uh, because I was, uh, you know, impulsive or you know I was young. Um, but I don't reflect too much, you know. If I if I fix something, my you know I think almost everybody, if you at a human nature, if you come to them and say, look, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I'm going to fix it. Here's what I'm going to do. Most people are like, look, all right. No big you think deal. so? Absolutely. Uh, where people get in uh, trouble is they make a mistake. They know it, but they have that instinctive need to defend themselves and to dig in, you know, and, and to, that does often doesn't help anybody. Interesting. As we close up each episode, I don't know if you watched the end of episodes, we always leave the listeners with one thing to deposit that, deposit that to their memory bank to implement in their daily life, whether it's a legal tip, whether it's personal life advice, whether it's just straight business advice. What's the one thing you want the masses of the listeners to walk away with from you today? I think that what you want in a lawyer is somebody who not only is aggressive and zealous in pursuing your goals but will be honest with you and give you the bad news um i really find that most people don't want to be told they're wrong mm-hmm. i mean think about it at about at a, in human nature most people don't want to be told they're wrong. They want to be told they're right. Correct. Validation. Right? And Exactly. They want to be validated, even if they're not entitled to validation, right? And you want a lawyer who exercises good judgment, is diligent, is prepared, but is willing to tell you, you know, look, you're on the wrong track. Um, most people don't realize uh, that a great lawyer is one who uh, has two sides to them. As I said before, the lion, right, to third parties, but, you know, the honest, you know, advisor in private. I I think that's the most important thing I want. You know, people who are thinking about hiring me or another lawyer is, you know, understand that a great lawyer, they need to be able to be more than just an advocate. For example— how many times do you drive past a lawyer's office and it'll say counselor at law? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Counselor. Mm. How can people get in contact with you? What's the best way? Best way to get in touch with me is to uh, email me. Uh, we'll put your email like right here somewhere. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I am, um, 
uh, somewhat old school in that, you know, you can always call my office, email me. Um, that's, I think, the best way. Interesting. And I think, you know, from dealing with you, I'm confident that you can go toe-to-toe with the big firms, the best of them. Does being your own solopreneur, if you will, ever weigh in on either a cost strategy or a level of effectiveness, or is it sometimes David versus Goliath? Well, that's a great, great question. I'm glad you asked me that. So for, I've been practicing law this year, it'll be 21 years. So That's my number, and we're in 2021. 20, Paul O'Neill. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> was that your favorite guy? favorite Yankee. Yeah. Really, Paul O'Neill? I was at his last game in wow. the World Series. But um, uh, I, for 18 of my 21 years, I was in uh, big law firms. And um, I learned that, you know, how to be a, a, a big firm guy. I was involved in a, a sophisticated, you know, cases, uh, high stakes cases. Uh, and then I went out three years ago on my own. And now I have, you know, uh, another lawyer who works for me. And I have an assistant. And uh, I like going up against uh, the big firms because I know I could go to toe-to-toe to them because I-, I learned in that environment. Now, look, um, sometimes you just don't have the firepower to keep up with a big sure. firm. You sure. know, they'll throw five people on it and sure. they'll just bury you in paper. Yep. You know, and, and I'll know. And I've told clients, listen, you know, I can help you, but the problem is you probably need yeah, uh, outnumbered. more. Yeah, I'm going to be outnumbered. You want me to, I'll be involved. You want me to bring in co-counsel to help? You know, I'll be your quarterback. Right. You know, right. I'll go to court. If you want me to be the face, I'll go to, I'll go to be the face for you in court and we'll have an army of sure. people writing everything behind sure. the scenes. Um, but I was a big firm guy for a long time. And I think that that experience was totally invaluable. Uh, I've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of different things that maybe somebody who came right out of law school who started, you know, hung their own shingle. We'll, we'll never see. Interesting. So my son's favorite song is Billions by Jeezy. He used to be young Jeezy. Now he's just Jeezy. Because he got old. Yeah, I think, yeah now he's yeah. old Jeezy. Right. But he says, tell my lawyer, watch my lawyer, told them both, watch my accountant. Ha. So that's it. You better have two attorneys and one accountant. But I appreciate you coming to the city today. Thank you for everything you've done for myself and everyone I've referred you so far. Thanks again, Chris, for uh, making the introduction. And uh, look, hopefully... We're more on the aggressive side moving forward rather than sitting back taking it. But, you know, I look forward to see what our relationship has to hold and then where we grow from here. So I appreciate you coming on. Jeff, thanks for having me. And I really, I'm really glad that I got to know you and have the opportunity to work we with gotta you. we got to get you and your wife and kids some deposit that shirts too. Yes. They'll be mailed to your house. I'll send you an Alberto Law Group shirt. Perfect. Appreciate it. Thank All you. Right. Take it easy.